Sabo Bona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Marketing Manager Jim Clark. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impression of the wines. This time around, we're taking a look at the second most planted red wine grape in South Africa, Syrah, or, depending on who you ask, Shiraz. While much of the premium Cabernet in South Africa is found around Stellenbosch, Syrah has found high-quality homes all across the Western Cape. In each corner, it expresses itself differently, too, so we've got a lot of ground to cover. Let's meet some winemakers and get the lay of the land. The thing about Syrah in this country, as we know, it's widely planted. Unlike a variety like Pinotage, it started off in the hands of the 20% of the producers who were not aligned to big calves or cooperatives. The serious producers of Syrah are family-owned or they're small company business. My name is Carl Schultz. I'm the cellar master at Hartenberg Wine Estate in Stellenbosch, Western Cape, South Africa. And I've been fortunate to have worked here for 28 vintages. Got to know the property really well. Hartenberg, at a time when the Cape wine industry was all about Cabernet and things like Sinzau, a lady called Eleanor Finlayson revolutionized the status quo at the time in the late 60s, early 70s. So Eleanor Finlayson is the grandmother and great-grandmother of a whole dynasty of Finlaysons in the industry, about six different properties stem from Hartenberg. She decided to plant Syrah, and at the time it was completely unheard of, but I think she had a, a rebel streak, firstly, and secondly, she was a visionary. I think she just knew that it was time to look at alternatives, and they were well-traveled, and I think they had picked up where Syrah was working globally, especially to Europe, and took the cue from there. The estate is the oldest family-owned producer of the grape, and today we produce five different examples of Syrah. Invariably, if one looks at the great sites for Syrah globally, there's stone involved often, there is age of vineyards involved, if stone's not involved, like the Barossa. We know that Syrah can be a vigorous variety, and for that reason, it thrives in marginal soils. I like to think that it needs to have one foot in the grave, and then it produces something of beauty. It really does. It must struggle. When I say struggle, we are obviously monitoring lots of vital signs as we approach ripening, but you cannot make quality if people have a heavy hand in irrigation or trying to crop load or the like. So I think for this end of the market and for what we're trying to project, the, the grape certainly has a place. And of course, very important where it has the edge on the Bordeaux varieties is it's genetically programmed drought resistance and heat resistance in the Rhone it gets pretty warm, and this berry, although it's very thin-skinned, has this amazing ability to, even when it's dimpled and showing a golf ball surface, that it has amazing flavor. And, and if that happens to Cab or Merlot, you've got cooked fruit. So I think if one considers the origins of the grape and its evolution, it is well-suited for the future because the future for our industry we're situated in the southwestern Cape, is warmer and drier. Now there's no longer a debate about that. 
My first encounter with Shiraz actually goes back to my study days at Elsenburg. You were allocated a hectare of white and a hectare of red to do your practical with, and I was lucky to draw Shiraz out the hat. My name is Niels Faberg. I'm the winemaker, owner, and I always add in tasting room lady as well because we do everything here. It's a family-owned winery. We're on the slopes of the Hoog Mountains, which are just outside the village of Bot River, about an hour east of Cape Town, about eight kilometers from the sea and about 20 kilometers from the town of Hermanus. So pretty central, but certainly cooler climate than over the mountains down the Pole side. It's a very small valley with a lot of family-owned wineries. I think we're now number seven. Uh, and about 13 labels in the valley. So we always joke we're the poor cousins amongst Elgin and Hilmanada, but it, we feel that we make up for it in a big way with our wines. So that works nicely. Just recently, we've been discussing great vintages of Shiraz in South Africa, and, and the general consensus was that the 97, 2007, and 2017, those three vintages have really been standout vintages. And I was trying to think how many winemakers could actually show three decades of Shiraz. So I have been making Shiraz for a long time. My first Shiraz that I made commercially was back at Beaumont in 1997 from 14 grapes, actually from the Stellenbosch area. But the first 100% Shirazes from the Botriver region were probably the 99 or 2000 vintage. 99, we probably stole a small crop of, of very young vines, which were planted in 1996, the first vineyards to be planted from Cape Gullis all the way to Solaris Pass. I think an interesting fact is that in 1995, which is not a long time ago, only 1.8% of the vineyards were planted to Shiraz. It's now over 13%, so it's been a big growth in the last 26 years. I'm Andrea Mullineau, owner and winemaker of Mullineau, which is part of Mullineau and Liu Family Wines. When I started my winemaking career, I had just graduated from the University of California, Davis, and I came to South Africa for an internship that was supposed to only be three months. And in that time, I fell in love with the wines and the food and the people, but the Syrah in South Africa, just really spoke of the place. And then I went to the south of France, where I was working in Chateauneuf-du-Pop, so mostly with Grenache at the time, but very influenced by the Syrah vineyards around and traveling into the northern Rhone, especially where I really developed my true love for Syrah in the home of Syrah, the, the mothership of Syrah. And while I was working in the south of France, I met Chris, who became my husband. But at the time, we really bonded over bottles of Syrah and drinking Syrah in wine bars and bistros at the wineries themselves. So we decided to come back to South Africa together. And because we both really appreciated Syrah made in an older world style, focusing a little bit more on spice and layers of texture and complexity of flavor rather than only focusing on primary fruit. We knew that we wanted to make Syrah together. And because of that, we were drawn to the Swartland where we really felt that the Syrahs 
that could be made from the vineyards in the Swartland could really highlight the fact that Syrah is such a chameleon of terroir and really showcase where it's grown. And therefore, we would be able to really make the type of Syrah that we desired. So more terroir-driven, spicy, textured. And we really felt that the sunshine that you get in the Swartland to ripen the Syrah, combined with the cool evenings and the breezy climate, meant that you could still have freshness in the wine. It meant that we could farm more naturally because there was very low disease pressure. And then just with the different soil types, we could really use Syrah to harness that terroir and use that as a vehicle to showcase what we wanted to in the bottle. My name is Trezon Barnard, and I'm the winemaker and the owner of Trezon Signature Wines. I've been making wine for the last 20 years, but have mainly focused on my own business for the last 13 years. And my main focus is to source grapes from various regions, but the focus have definitely been the cooler climate regions of South Africa, which includes Elam, Ord, Sornafskloof, and Ornodavensorkrafir, which is all along the southern coastal areas of South Africa. I have three different Shirazes in my portfolio. I've got the Swartland Shiraz, and it portrays more the darker fruit spectrum, the kind of gritty tannin, a beautiful wine. It's a good window into Swartland and what the Swartland wines give us. Then I have the Sonas Kluif. Although I've only made one vintage of it, it's very difficult to get my hands on those grapes. It's a farm that's been farmed biodynamically. And because it's in a cool climate area and being farmed biodynamically, they often get caught by the weather and often there's quite a lot of rot. So it's very difficult to get a healthy vintage out of that. But when I do get those grapes, it's amazing. And it's almost in between the Swartland fruit and the Elam fruit. It's got dark fruit, but it's got the spice as well. It's a very interesting parcel. And then the Elam Shiraz is more your kind of white pepper spicy, more your red fruit spectrum rather than your dark fruit spectrum. And then the silky velvety tannin. Without taking away structure and gravitas from the wine, the wine I don't want to say it's a lighter style wine. There's a lot of gravitas in the wine. It's just different. You get that without overly extracting or overworking this wine or even introducing a hell of a lot of new oak. It's just definitely more elegant for me. There's finesse. There's the red fruit, bright fruit, spice on the Elam wines. It's just beautiful. My first experience with Shiraz would have been probably a Jordan winery, but in very small volumes. And then I moved to Australia, although in Australia, when I worked at Mosswood, the focus was more cab, not necessarily Shiraz. And then I did quite a few vintages in Bordeaux, which again, wasn't the focus um, at all. But when I came back to South Africa and I headed up Anvolka, Shiraz was one of the varieties and it became actually quite an important part of the blend. I then started getting to know the grape, definitely didn't understand it at that stage, but then also realized it's almost the opposite to Cab and Merlot and your Bordeaux varietals. But I was very interested in this grape because it was so different. Just looking at the phenology of the grape, the skins are much softer, much thinner than, for instance, your Cab, your Merlots, your Cabernet Francs, your Petit Verdots. You're working with quite a bigger berry. The ripening is very different to those other varietals. And that intrigued me. I always found that with the Bordeaux varietals, your window period was so small for picking. 
and Shiraz was a lot more forgiving for your picking window. And also you could work stylistically quite different with the gray. And it took me a while to actually figure out exactly in what style I wanted to go with this grape. Having had the Bordeaux experience, kind of worked the Shiraz grape immensely, like work it like a Bordeaux variety and not thinking that the skins should actually lend me into a different direction. And so I made a lot of mistakes in the beginning. I over-extracted a lot. And knowing what I know now, I think it's actually a grape that doesn't need that hard work. For me, it expresses so much better when you're working gentler with the grape. And I think that's where my affinity started with a grape is when I realized this grape will give in abundance if you actually work gentler with the grape and just bring in a little bit more finesse and just a little bit softer. So I think it grew on me as I started to understand the grape better. That's how my affinity grew for the grape and also how it grows and how differently it grows and how it is a little bit more forgiving for when you pick and you can stylistically make a very interesting wine when you pick phenolically ripe but not push for super ripeness. So that's the broad picture, but we've already heard hints about how much Shiraz expresses the character of the different places it's grown. Let's start at the district level and then zoom in and see what makes each Shiraz so distinctive, be it from Swartland, Stellenbosch, Botrever, or Cape Agulhas, or for that matter, individual sites within those areas. One must keep in mind that Stellenbosch, in actual fact, was a slow starter regarding this grape. The focus was very much in the warmer areas to the north of Stellenbosch, the Swatland, for example, has a long history with the grape because of its heat and drought-resistant abilities, I think. The edge Stellenbosch has over most other areas is they have the ability to judiciously irrigate if the season demands it and they have the water infrastructure and the water holding ability to do that and that is going to become extremely important going forward what that allows you to do is to fully ripen to optimal physiological ripeness syrah and what we find in Stellenbosch as a general descriptor red and black fruit literally in a short phrase that's what we are that's not seen in the Swatland. It's not seen down Botriver Way or Elam or any of these other places. Gravel Hill, where the stone is involved, we do get a white pepper character. We get an herbaceousness. The French use a word called garrigue. In South Africa, we have an inland area, semi-desert, and a beautiful lamb. And that area is called the Karoo. And the Karoo is full of really expressive, perfumed, herbaceous bushes, positive, not green herbaceous. And you get that in certain sites in Stellenbosch. But again, it's not this strong black pepper, Crow's Hermitage, Swatland type of characteristic. We do, we definitely know that the producers in the Swatland, for example, tend to use a lot more whole bunch and submerged cap. And that also elevates the sensation or the impression of black pepper. So Stellenbosch for me is violets, cherry, plum, black and red fruits, essentially. Shiraz can handle heat, but if you chat to some of the really old French winemakers, they say Shiraz should have its feet cool and be able to see the sea. And, okay, we don't always see the sea, but we know that we're damn close. And I don't think they can see the sea from the Rhone Valley either, from most of the, most of the Rhone Valley. But it's an interesting saying, and I think Shiraz suits itself to South Africa 
I suppose I ended up in Bot River by chance more than anything else. And I came back from traveling around the world making wine. It just happened that two of my colleagues were in the area that I studied with and I went to go and see them. And then while I was seeing them, went and visited Beaumont Wines who were just starting to make their own wine as opposed to delivering it to the cooperative. I started off at Beaumont and fell in love with Overberg in a big way. I've now been in the Overberg for 26 years, and I think every day I'm here, I enjoy it even more. The Bot River soils, we're quite lucky in the sense that we've got a lot of what they call decomposing shale on a clay base, so there are cool soils. A little bit of what they call bockefellic shale as well, and those strata of shale keep the moisture in, so the roots, the fine roots, don't look for that. We don't irrigate our Shiraz. We foolishly romantically want every year to tell a story. And uh, so we need those cool soils. It doesn't mean great because we've had some drought years, but now things seem to be sorting themselves out. I think Bot River obviously is warm, but we get these lovely cooling breezes coming down the valley. And I think that gives us a little bit more hang time. We get probably more balanced fruit, more natural acidity and a good pH. And I think the soils are quite cool. So you get this spiciness coming through. Obviously, if you pick them later, they can be big. But I always think there's a little hint of saltiness maybe as well. But there's a lovely perfume that we get. Our best way to describe it is Feinbos. The French would call it Garrigue. But there's that line running through a lot of the elegant Shirazes and the well-made ones. And, and they're really doing well. So Yelemans or Nuskluf is closer to the most southern tip of Africa, which is called Cape Agalas. And this is actually where our two oceans meet, the Indian and the Atlantic Ocean. So due to these big ocean masses, we have lots of climatic effects from the ocean. We have obviously much milder conditions and temperature conditions, but also incredible dominant winds out there, which plays a huge role in the formation and also the growing period of the vine. Another thing from that area is that when we were still a supercontinent, they reckon that Elam broke off from Antarctic, which makes that area known for its incredible old and ancient soils. And again, this has a big effect on our vines. They are ferrocrete, so a conglomerate of iron oxides. So I think the soils obviously play an incredible role in all the vineyards out there, as with everywhere we are. We cannot take away our soils and the importance of the soils. Exactly what the soils give to what variety, I can't answer that. And if anybody can answer that, they're very clever. I think it's something that we're still figuring out. I think it's such a combination. There's so many parameters that play a role that we can't at all say it's because of this and this. It's, it's almost impossible to say that. It is definitely a cooler climate area. We have predominant winds in the winter and in the summer months. Interesting enough, one would think that there is higher rainfall because of our proximity to the ocean, but we don't have huge amount of rainfall. I think we're around 600 moles per year, but we do have a lot of underwater groundwater there, so a lot of spring water. The vines have access to water throughout the year. Coming from a Stellenbosch background, I almost overcompensated for the fact that I was in a cool climate area. So I really pushed for super ripeness, but I was in a cool climate area and thinking I really need to get alcohols higher and not understanding that actually I'm going to get phenolic ripeness, even though I'm in a cooler climate and probably earlier than I'm going to get in a Stellenbosch area. And it took me many years to figure out that I don't have to go that super ripe point. It, in fact, took me a whole vintage to 
go into harvest and not analyze my grape juice at all. So I actually one year decided not to do any grape sampling or analysis on grape sampling. I only picked on phenolic ripeness, only on what I tasted. I didn't back it up with sugar. I didn't back it up with pH or acid or anything like that. I literally picked blind. And only after fermentation did I actually take an analysis and realize, oh, goodness, I've just dropped my alcohol one and a half percent. Stylistically, that's a completely different wine. So going down from 15% to 13.5%. And then for the first time, the penny dropped and I realized I've actually been making the Shiraz from the Elam area completely wrong for so long because finally the cool climate identity of this beautiful grape started shining through when I picked it phenolically but not super ripe. And then I started falling in love with this grape. I don't have to go big and bold and over-extracted in a lot of new oak. I get so much more just from that grape when I actually pick it, when it's ripe but not super ripe. I think the style for the Yelim Shiraz has got a very specific identity. In the aromatics, that peppery, spicy, white pepper characters is definitely synonymous with the Elam grapes. But for me, I guess the bigger ID is the tannin structure. I make uh, Swartland Shiraz as well, so I can compare them quite nicely. And the tannin structure of Elam is very silky. It's a silky, uh, flawless tannin. Whereas with the warmer areas, with different areas, I always get that kind of grippiness, that grittiness, chalkiness, which I enjoy a lot as well. But Elam's tannin structure is that seamless, flawless, almost velvety, silky tannin. And that's almost the bigger difference for me in the cooler climate Shiraz versus another area. If that is how I make the wines, I don't know, because I extract my Shiraz from Swartland versus how I extract from Elam very similarly. And my wood regime is not that different. So, yes, then it must be the grape and the tannin within the grape. And for me, tannins and those beautiful aromatics, that white pepper kind of spiciness. And that is Shiraz. Shiraz is spicy, but there's a very typical white pepper character. In the flight of Shiraz is I can always pick up the Elam wine. It's quite unique to that area. We make Shiraz from four main different soil types. We're very lucky in the Swartland that... We have relatively large areas of single soil types, and that's because the soils are so ancient. We have soils that are up to 500 million years old, so they're actually very eroded away. So that's why we have very large areas of single soil types. And that's why when we talk about making Syrah on granite or schist or quartz or iron soils, they really are pure expressions of that. On the granitic soils of the Swartland, the granite is a very decomposed granite. So it's not like the granite countertops that you'll get in your kitchen. If you take one of the granite rocks and drop it on the ground, it'll shatter into a million pieces. And that friability is really important for the roots to be able to dig down very deep. Because in decomposed soils that are very devoid of natural organic matter, they need to be able to reach their own water source because there's not enough carbon in the soil to naturally hold that water closer to the surface. So the roots get really deep to reach their own water source. So therefore, the vines that grow on the granite soils 
always want to reflect those deep roots above the ground. It wants to make much bigger canopies. And because it's reaching its own water, it can make slightly bigger leaves. And in the warm, dry Swartland, when you're working with a slightly bigger canopy or in the shade of a bush vine, it acts as an umbrella. So it's a couple degrees cooler in the canopy. The fruit doesn't have as much direct sun. So you get the warmth to ripen the grapes, but it stays a little bit cooler in the canopy. So you retain more freshness, more linear tannins, slightly elevated acidity, and more perceived freshness as well, too. So even if the acid's not that much higher, it feels the coolest on the palate. And then on the schist soils, we have vines that have roots that don't get quite as deep because schist is like baked slate. Slate is used as roof tiles and as floor tiles. And the whole reason for that is because it takes water away. It's like water retentive and, and the water flows away. So the same thing happens in the vineyard. When it rains in the schist vineyards, the water just mostly runs away. There is a small clay content in the schist, so it can absorb some water, but the roots never get as deep. It's a much harder soil, and therefore the canopy stays smaller. And because vines are very self-regulating, it knows that it can't ripen big fruit. So the clusters stay smaller, the berries stay smaller, and therefore it's a higher skin-to-juice ratio. And then you end up with more structured tannins. It's very small berries and thicker skins, so the tannins and the color will always be more apparent than in the granite soils. On the iron soils, it's a very oxidized red iron, gravelly, rich clay soil. So the highest clay content. Therefore, it retains the most moisture in the winter and in the spring. But clay is a pretty selfish soil type in that it wants to give water to the plant until it doesn't anymore. When the vine reaches about veraison is also about when the clay stops giving water back to the plant. And so there's been a lot of growth in the spring, a lot of growth leading into the early summer. And then as soon as the vine wants to start veraison and the berries want to swell and change color, it's like putting a handbrake on and the grapes stay the smallest. The juice ratio is just tiny. So our total yields on iron soils are always lower, but the juice recovery from those clusters is even lower. So we can end up with about 50% of the wine from grapes grown on iron soils from the same volume of grapes grown on granite soils. Now with the iron soils, when you think of vineyards around the world that are more clay driven and especially with these red richer soils, it's more about mid palate, more about texture. The tannins aren't necessarily bigger though, because even though the berries are smaller and it has that same skin to juice ratio similar to the schist soils, because of the iron in the soil, because of the clay content, it's always a bit plusher when it comes to tannins. So they can be naturally very high in extract and color, but the tannins are always more supple than on the schist soils. And then the last soil type, which is the rarest soil type, and we have not released a Syrah grown only on this soil type, but our quartz soils. And the quartz develops in veins between the schist layers, and it erodes at a very different rate than the schist itself. So we end up with these collections of quartz on the top. On the lower slopes of 
the schist soil vineyards. And what that does is it reflects a lot of light back up into the canopy. The schist is very brown, but then the quartz that essentially floats to the top because of its different erosion rate, captures the sun's energy, reflects it back up into the canopy. But what's quite interesting is because quartz is semi-translucent, it doesn't reflect a lot of heat. It's more just that spark of sunshine back up in it. So the Syrah that I make on quartz soils, I expect it to radiate back into the palate that way. You taste more sunshine and more spice driven by the sun on the quartz soil Syrahs. In 1993, I did my first vintage at Hartenburg and inherited a parcel of vineyard on a dome-shaped hill, which one walks in the soil, there is no soil. You're walking on stone. It's a brown ferrous pebble called einlaterite, and you get nodules either in a state of cementation or in a state of disintegration. And it depends incredibly on the rainfall patterns over a period of, say, 5, 10 years. If the rainfall is higher, the clay pulls the nodules together and they form big nodes as big as a football and even bigger. And then when the soils dry, the clay tends to crack. And when it cracks, it frees up all the pebbles. So it's continually going through a state of flux. And... Having dug multiple profile holes to see what's going on below the soil, one discovers that the stone layer is literally 30 to 50 centimeters deep. And then we have very high-grade potter's clay for about 7 to 15 meters. And no surprise, there are three brick factories in the greater vicinity who obviously are reliant on clay for their product. So what we're finding is the vineyards on the slope and from the moment we pick the first grapes to the last, there could be a difference in time of two to three weeks, which is quite incredible because it's one parcel at about 3.8 hectares. And so you find that at the top of the slope, it ripens first. The areas where the clay comes close to the surface, the vineyards are under greater stress and they would ripen earlier and so on and so on. But it's a fascinating site. The berries are the size of a green pea. And they're incredibly concentrated. I fortunately worked a vintage in very similar, not the same stone type, but gneiss and a shale in Cotretia in the 90s and learned a lot from what they were doing. And based on that experience, when the time came to slowly start replanting the gravel hill, I, along with a friend who had a wealthy owner, I sourced the clone that was being used and being planted in the Northern Rhine. I brought it back to South Africa and we had it multiplied. I actually arranged that we bring back four clones and they are still very much in use today. So that's Gravel Hill. I realized in subsequent plantings that clone doesn't work on clay loam soils and that's where the stalk comes into the picture. So the stalk syrup is as the crow flies 800 meters further up the valley and within sight of each other, but the one has no loamy Soil fraction, as we understand soil, which could form dust, and so on and so on. That's the gravel hill. And then the stalk, Sarah, is clay loam, and it goes down 10, 15, 20 meters. It's rated 9 out of 10 on the soil potential map. So essentially something like the Barossa in South Africa. No stone and quite a vigorous soil. And 
the methodology and cultivation is on a different planet when it comes to the stalk. It produces marble-sized berries, so twice the size of the gravel hill. We know from experience now that soil-rich sites like the gravel hill have elevated levels of natural tannin, and for that reason, we never touch the skin when we're fermenting and extracting. But stalk, by contrast, after visiting Gigal and spending time with them in the 90s or so, I brought back the first mechanical cap plunging units for the stalk specifically. And to this day, you can punch that day and night and you never get an excess of tannins. We spend 35, 40 days on the skins as opposed to the gravel hill, which is about 10 to 12 days. So they're made differently, they taste differently, massive different. Those are what we call our single-site vineyards. We didn't claim it, we didn't understand it at the time, but the word gravel hill denotes a a site-specific vineyard long before any of the other Syrahs then followed. And it's just great to see that there are things like roundstone and schist and so on and so on. I think that's where the strength is. If we go the opposite direction of the Australian concept where we're doing cross-regional blends and we're blurring site specificity, I think it's it's not the way to go. If we're looking to do high-end, then we need to sell authenticity and credibility and excellence, of course, in wine. And that's the way to do it. The great wines of the world have a sense of place, and that's what we want to reflect. Place obviously matters, and it has a knockdown impact on everything else a winemaker does, from what clones they use, to how they handle the vines, to what they do with the grapes when they come into the cellar. Approaches have changed over time as well, and it looks like they'll continue to do so. Let's look at the viticulture and vinification of Syrah in a bit more detail. The clonal landscape, I remember in the late 80s when I started out, we literally had the choice of two Syrah clones, a clone called SH1 and a clone called SH21. And for a long time, if you planted, you literally made sure that you spread bet. You planted one and the other, and... There wasn't much variation in their growing characteristics or in the wines. And then it was a trip to the Rhone in the early 90s, being exposed a lot of mass selections. Obviously, the older vineyards, they prefer to take cuttings from the existing vineyard. But when vineyards were replanted or if new land was broken, or what I often saw was that if younger producers were going to be planting, they would look for clonal selections. So... It was determined that the most popular clone from the mass selections already existing for decades and decades in the northern Rhone in the area of Kutriti was a clone called SH470. So I think quite early on, by about 1992, I knew we needed to get that and a few other clones that were also popping up, a clone called 174 sh three hundred and so on, to get them back to South Africa. But the quarantine process here is debilitating. It takes six, eight years. Terrible. And if you bring in a clone privately, regardless of the variety, it costs big money, not the money that most private people have. So we joined forces with a friend of mine who was managing a property in Somerset West for a very well-to-do owner. And they were looking to plant Syrah, and we got together and we planted the first what we call mother blocks. Once the nurseries had cleansed the material and the bills were paid, they were released to Hartenberg and the other property, and we established the first plantings of those three clones. And as far as the gravel hill goes, the rest is history. Because we're in a cooler climate area, we 
open up their bunch zone 100% on the morning sun side. So strip the leaves completely. So the bunches are 100% exposed. But we do this from really early on. So we do it from pea size. So the grapes are obviously used to the sun exposure. And we keep those bunch zone open. But because of a different light intensity in the Elam area, there's no sunburn. Also, the grapes are accustomed to it. So we do that to get rid of any green notes, make sure that there is 100% phenolic ripeness. But because we do that, we don't have to push for huge alcohols. We can pick fairly early. I think my Bechera's that I've made is on a 13% alcohol from Elam. And that is the tannins are 100% ripe. There's no greenness there. It's also not just about daytime temperatures, it's about light intensity as well. And the Swartland is at 33 degrees south. That's much closer to the equator than the northern Rhone is from the other side. If you were to flip us into the northern hemisphere, it would be more like Sicily. So the light intensity is so much stronger. So the canopy management is key. Removing too many leaves, which is what people usually do to maintain fruiting zone health or to bring more sunshine in. If we were to do that too early, we would end up with jammy over-the-top flavors and, and raisins. But we do try to maintain a healthier canopy with still a lot of air movement through that. So the best way possible is really with bushvine because you are creating an umbrella. But Syrah is a very floppy variety, so it doesn't always do fantastic as a bush vine. It has to be trained that way from the beginning. Pruning techniques are essential. So traditionally, Syrah does pretty well with a bit of physical support, whether it's stock by Polky or Eshela, or on a trellis. So if the vines are trellised or stock by Polky, it is very important to maintain still a bit of fullness, not letting too much direct sunlight in too early. So the dappled light, the filtered light through the leaves, through the canopy is a fantastic way to maintain freshness in the wine. My winemaking across the board for our Syrahs is really to let the site speak for itself. But when I'm trying to showcase how Syrah can really put a magnifying glass on the site, what I like to do is treat the vineyards that I know are going to be bottled separately, similarly, because then it's not my hand that's influencing the flavor of the wine. It's not the way the grapes were handled. It's not the percentage of whole bunch may be changing. It really is the soil that's speaking the loudest. So I like to treat all the wines as gently as possible. I always approach Syrah when I want the soils to speak the loudest, the same way you would when brewing a cup of tea, more of a steeping rather than a forced extraction. Because if you have a cup of tea and you have the tea leaves in there or a tea bag, you can see the color kind of making ribbons extracting out into the water. And it's being extracted out in a natural balance. The tannin, the flavors, the aromatics are all coming out in the balance that the tea wants to give. And if you take that tea bag and you squeeze it, it's going to be darker. It's going to be more tannic, but it's going to be out of balance. It's going to feel weird on some part of your palate. So I treat making wine the exact same way in that it's more of a steeping. I like to be as gentle as possible, sometimes just one action a day, just to keep the cap healthy. 
because I want the extraction to take place in a way where the tannins and the flavors and the aromatics are coming out in their ratio that they want to give. And then I do feel that it's a more true expression of the soil on which it's grown. In order to maintain freshness in Swartland wines, it has to be the right variety planted in the right soil. And Syrah is very versatile that way in the Swartland. We have the warm days to ripen and develop the flavors, but we also have the cool nights, which I think people forget oftentimes how important diurnal variation is in winemaking. So to have cool nights, the vine relaxes, the grape relaxes, you maintain more natural acidity, but even more important than actual acidity is freshness. I'm always comparing acidity and freshness. A lemon is acidic, but a cucumber is fresh. And a fresh wine is more pleasing on the palate, goes better with food, and will naturally age very well. And those are (laughs) three very important factors for me. On the Saboteur, we're going for more fruit-driven, so we're fermenting slightly cooler, probably a little bit less on the pump-overs and punch-downs, because the wine is for earlier consumption, even though they have now proven to be aging beautifully. So trying to retain fruit, trying to retain freshness with the Shiraz under the Luddite label, it's definitely something more age-worthy, a bit more time on skins post-maceration as well to pick up finer tannins. Depending on the vintage, we'll probably up the punch-down regime a little bit more. And the wooding is probably the biggest difference. Obviously, the fruit for the Luddite is 100% my own fruit, whereas Saboteur has bought in fruit from the Bot River Valley, but we only a year in barrel to retain that fruit for the Saboteur, whereas we two years in barrel for the Shiraz and the Luddite. And I think that two years in barrel just allows the wine to really settle into what it wants to be. And it gives it texture and structure and age-worthiness. We want to keep that fruit there as well, but it's a more brooding fruit than, say, the Saboteur. I think from a South African point of view, we definitely got a bit of a wake-up call with this drought for five years and some really hot weather during February. So I can see probably more stalk use, but also maybe blending in 10 to 15% of Grenache. I think Grenache is being touted as, as a bit of a saviour when it comes to hot weather. It's a varietal that seems to be well suited to South Africa. So I think there's going to be maybe a leaning towards more Southern Rhone type blends, even though the majority of the blends are going to be Shiraz. And I think that's quite exciting. We're going to have to find cultivars that handle our conditions. And I think that probably improves the overall poise and balance of the wines. We're certainly experimenting with it. We're finally getting some Grenache into the Saboteur Red. It's just a shame that the cab is too good to leave out. So it's a Rhone blend with a cab twist. But hopefully in time we might get to 100% a Rhone type blend on the Saboteur. The Luddite Shiraz, I'll obviously like to keep it as a Shiraz. But we keep looking at maybe 5 or 10%. Grenache Mouvad with that and, and make something a little bit more rony in a way, a round blend, so to speak. When it comes to co-ferment or using Voigna with Shiraz, we've tried everything. We've tried co-fermenting, we've tried keeping the juice separate and then co-fermenting. We've put the grapes in the cold room to wait for the Shiraz to get to the same ripeness level. We've blended in the beginning, we've blended at the end. And it's one of these weird things, and, and I think... It's because the Voigna seems to get this peachy characteristic more so than anywhere else in the world in South Africa. 
And so when you make up the blend, and even if you make up, you say, well, let's say we'll blend in 5%, and it just tastes absolutely fantastic. You think, geez, this is the best thing ever. But literally three years down the line, four years down the line, the Voigno gets so dominant, and it actually starts overpowering the Shiraz. And I think nobody really wants a tutti-frutti Shiraz, not something that's got an apricot characteristic coming through. So very few new world producers get it right. And the only thinking I can think of, I probably could only taste two or three that I would actually go and pay money for that I think work. And I always question why is it working in the Rhone? And I think a lot of it is, is co-planted. And so there's a symbioticness between the vines in the actual vineyard block and they ripen closer to each other. So they're either picked as a field blend or they picked very close proximity to each other, but also close ripeness levels to each other. If we wait for the Voigner and the Shiraz, the Voigner gets far too ripe and becomes this real pungent apricot characteristic. So it's a very interesting sort of concept. But personally, I'm not sure Voigner and Shiraz works in the new world, unfortunately. It's quite interesting if I look back when you're 25, 26 and you're trying to make your way, you chat to all the other winemakers, the guys that have been working with Shiraz, and it was quite interesting. The general feeling was that, to use an Afrikaans word, the sort of omens kusuk, which is, so if you were sitting in the bath too long and you looked at your fingers, that sort of look of uh, slightly shriveled skins on Shiraz, that was the indication of when you should start picking. That has gone out the window a long time ago. Those were making slightly clumsy, jammy Shirazes, I think, a lot of the time. There was a lot more use of big wood, I think, to try and compete with what the Aussies were doing in, in the marketplace, uh, certainly in the foreign markets. And I think we've all just taken a step back. We're picking earlier, we're picking fresher, and probably the biggest change is the wooding regime. I think people have backed off a little bit. A lot of people were almost 100% new wood. Shiraz is certainly at around 13 and a half, 14 alcohol. It's quite a delicate wine and quite perfumed and can be quite floral depending on the soil. And you don't want to hide that with too much wood. So the wooding has changed, I think, dramatically. We certainly, at Luddite, in a big year, we might go up to 30% new wood, but we'll come back down to about 20% in a cooler vintage and some maybe even 15%. The other big change is a lot of use of more whole bunch fermentation, more addition of stalks back into the fermentation, and that addition of stalks has definitely given the wines a, a different complexity, but also a fresher feel in the marketplace. So probably the three things that have the biggest influence is, is picking earlier, not allowing this sort of shriveled look, the wooding being a lot more uh, compatible, and then the addition of stalks during fermentation have probably been the three three major things that have changed in the last 25 years. And I think that's been for the good in a big way, I think. like to wrap up our podcasts with a North American perspective. So in this case, I turned to Kat Thomas, who is a self-proclaimed wine goddess out in Las Vegas. Hi, Kat. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me. We've talked a few times and there aren't enough South African wines out in Las Vegas, 
but I know there's certainly a few. Have you come across much in the way of Syrah? On a personal level of bringing South African wines into my programs, definitely not here in the Valley, but I try and do as much as I can. I know I've experienced them with you on different occasions, and every time that I have, it's been amazing, and that oh, wow, all right, let's do this. It's just trying to get them into the city is always that fun challenge. One of the things I find with the U.S. market in general is when you look at the numbers for Syrah or Shiraz, depending on how it's labeled, beyond South Africa, here in the U.S. market, it's not a category that does very well. But when I talk to South African importers and ask how they're doing with their Syrahs and Shirazes, they're usually pretty upbeat. So what is your take on where Syrah fits in on, if not the American market, at least the the Las Vegas market? I think it's up to the individual and their personal goals as a sommelier or a server or a salesperson. So with me, whenever I approach a a variety, whether it's Syrah or it's Weigelt or it's Grunewaldliner or some other fun variety that perhaps is not well-known or well-received, I go out of my way to not discuss it first with the guest. I toss it in their their glass, and I use my Jersey force, and I tell them to drink it, (laughs) and I tell them I'm not going to tell them what it is. I tell them to swish it around, enjoy it, and I give them the indication that they're going to fall in love with it. Most people fall in love with something when they're told that they're going to. And when you come back to it and you tell them what it is, there that moment of, oh my goodness, I never knew I loved Syrah. Oh my gosh, it's from South Africa. Oh my gosh, I didn't even know they made Syrah in South Africa. All right. So what I'm hearing is for the wines themselves, in this case, South African Syrah has what it needs to appeal to people. It's just a matter of giving them permission, encouraging them to check it out and opening their mind to it. Yes, very much so. Again, it's giving them that wrapped package and then giving them that opportunity to unwrap it and say, oh, okay. We sent you a a few bottles to check out while we were planning this talk. And I think we'll start with Stellenbosch, which would be the Boschkloof. How is this wine showing? Beautifully. They all were, and there's just this great structure and meaty, velvety kind of blue and black fruit quality that you put your schnoz in it and you're like, great, Syrah. There's something a little more unique to this, and there's some great fruit structure to it, and there's a little more herbaceous quality to this. And it takes you past maybe something from definitely not something from, say, the South Australia quality. It's not got that much fruit concentration to it. So you go, where could this be? And it's definitely a unique style of Syrah. It's beautiful. Great. Now, the next one is more of a tongue twister, which is the Buchenhutzkluf. This one, so the winery is in Franschhoek, but they're sourcing from vineyards up in Swartland. And oftentimes I think there's a value in kind of comparing Swartland and Stellenbosch is a shorthand for uh, hotter and more moderate climates in this case, with Swartland being a bit drier, a bit hotter than Stellenbosch typically. So what did you think of the Buchenhutzkluf? This had a little more age to it as well. 
So mm-hmm. it had time to settle into itself. And I found this had a little more of the grittiness to it and a little more of that. We don't like to use the word minerality as professionals um, because we're not supposed to, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I think I found this to be a little more mineral driven and the fruit had fallen into its place as that second nature. And I found this to just sing to me on the palate in that aspect. I loved this. And with the chairs on the label, it sat down. And, and being that I love yoga, this really, the chair pose, it sat oh. down <laughs> the palate to me. And I loved that imagery to me. It just sits there for me. And, and I love it. This one just, it, it really made me very happy. I find that very interesting because we often talk about Stellenbosch with Chenin Blanc as having a fruitier expression compared to, say, Swartland, which tends to be, for lack of a better word, a more mineral expression. So now it seems like you're finding a very similar relationship with the Syrah. And I could be the crazy one, but it could be because of that age differentiation. But that's what popped through for me. And it's really exciting, but just a great expression for me. So the final wine, the third wine, is uh, even older still and actually comes from a cooler climate area. We're going down the Cape South Coast, the Luddite Syrah. This is from Botriver, which is warmer part of a cooler area, basically. Does that show in the style of the wine? Oh, yeah. This is what I'm drinking at 1030 <laughs> in my glass right now. And I would love to hear the reasoning of why they label this as Shiraz as opposed to the Syrah. But just gorgeous. And because the age, maybe, potentially, maybe it's because of the regionality of it. Maybe it's both, but just the balance of the fruit and the structure. The tannins are so well integrated and and just fine. The fruit is still showing. It's just so plush and velvety and yet lean, if that makes any sense. It's just perfect right it really is beautiful i'm i had to keep corvening this because i don't want to open it and finish it i was really (laughs) impressed upon this so thank you for these oh my pleasure when the podcast is out you can go back and listen because he talked about why he calls it shiraz and sarad he's a big believer that in south africa they probably should call it shiraz for kind of historical reasons so from your take, is there a plus or minus from calling it Shiraz or Syrah, either in terms of what the wines can express or how they sell in the market? Not yet. Um, at least at the wine bar that I'm uh, running right now in Las Vegas, I am in a market where a lot of the guests are really intrigued with learning about wine. And it, it's phenomenal. It's amazing. We have a good mix of people that are in tune with knowing and in tune with not knowing the difference, if that makes any sense. Las Vegas has a a decent, I'll say, and that's not a lot, but a decent amount of white wines from South Africa, but not at all red wines. And I actually have three by the glass white wines right now from South Africa on my wine list, which is great, but I don't have any access to red wine really to be brought in by the glass right now. Because I I would, but I don't want to have the same producer because I have that goofy rule, which, you know, but so hopefully I can start pushing 
into some of my suppliers to start bringing in some of these things because these are great. And this is why I think it's really important that people like yourself do these things to remind us, to encourage us to have these things brought in because it's important. Little wine bars like myself, this is what makes the difference. I have regulars now that come in and buy these wines and bring them home and are having these unique things and aren't just buying the cookie cutter things that are being sold around me. So this is really exciting. Hope you enjoyed this look at Syrah in South Africa, or Shiraz, whichever you prefer. Either way, you can find more resources and links to the producers we talked to at our website, wosa.us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. In our next episode, we're going to head over the mountain, as the South Africans say, to the Breda River Valley specifically to a district called Robertson. It's an area that will take you by surprise with its warm days and cool nights. You can go from needing shade to needing a jacket in a matter of a few hours. It's also home to some of the only limestone soils in South Africa, making it a great home for Chardonnay in particular. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.